Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers, bringing you a special Valentine's Day deep dive episode of The Bodyguard. That's right, listeners. We've got the stuff that you want. We've got the things that you need. We've got more than enough. (laughs) To make you drop to your knees. (laughs) (laughs) And that's The Bodyguard, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... Chris excitedly sent me a message about um, an episode that we were going to do for our flashback portion of Patreon, telling me that he had chose The Bodyguard and, you know, that it it is indeed a horror movie. And after some thinking, I'm like, by God, you're right. So, (laughs) yeah, I was just like, emphasize this and that. And you've got like one of the 90s thrillers, you know, it's just it's all right there. People don't think of it as such, but I think it's an interesting conversation that we will get to near the the end of this episode. So stay tuned. That's right. So uh, The Bodyguard is a 1992 American romantic thriller directed by Mick Jackson, written by Lawrence Kasdan and starring Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston. Costner stars as a former a secret service agent turned bodyguard who is hired to protect Houston's character from an unknown stalker. The film was Houston's acting debut. Was it her last thing too? No, she was in Waiting to Exhale after this and um, something else. She didn't make that many movies. I don't remember her in Waiting to Exhale. Yeah. I mean, because people only remember, you know, Angela Jack- Angela Jackson. Is that her name? Ang- Angela Bassett? Yeah. <laughs> What the fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> People only remember Angela Bassett like setting that fucking car on fire, you know, from waiting to exhale. But Whitney Houston was there. Maybe she's, I watched How Stella Got Her Groove Back. Yeah, she's not in that. That's, okay. that's Whoopi but, and Angela. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so Whitney Houston sang the theme song to Waiting to Exhale. It's that shoop, 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 a doo. That song, you know what I'm talking about? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> different movie, different song. <laughs> It's okay. Different genre. <clears throat> I'll run to you and bring you a copy of Waiting to Exhale. So before we go too off the rails, this is The Bodyguard. Frank Farmer to see Miss Marin. What? Alexander Graham Bell to see Miss Marin. All right. Bill said he used to be with the Secret Service. I was two years with Carter, four with Reagan. Reagan got shot. Not on my ship. All my colors for you. You don't look like a bodyguard. This is my disguise. (laughs) Well, his timing's good. Henry, I've spent a lot of time guarding people all over the world, and I found one thing to be true. No matter how incompetent the assassins, no matter how much they miss their target, there's one person who always gets hit. Who? The cocky black chauffeur. You afraid I might get picked off in my snazzy running suit? No, I'm afraid that I'm going to have to jog with you. Someone was in my house? Ah. Wait a minute, someone was in my house? Everybody's afraid of something. That's how we know we care about things. When we're afraid we're losing. How about you, Frank Farmer out there on the edge? Rachel, I don't want to get confused about what I'm doing here. I'm not confused. You pay me to protect you. That's what I do. And what is it? I'm afraid of not being there. Frank Farmer, played Stupid by name. <laughs> I just wish somebody would call him Double F. Frank Farmer played by Kevin Costner, 
is a former Secret Service agent, once assigned with protecting Presidents Carter and Reagan, but now works in the private sector, protecting wealthy clients with very special security needs. Longtime friend Bill Devaney contacts Frank about a special case, protecting movie and music superstar Rachel Marin, played by Whitney Houston, from a deranged fan who has become violent. In fact, the stalker had sent a bomb and a doll that exploded in her dressing room. And that is like the most raggedy ass fucking doll, <laughs> you know? They were like bringing it. I was like, why are they bringing her that ugly ass doll? <laughs> and then explode. Despite not working with celebrities, Frank decides to meet with Rachel at her home in Los Angeles. He arrives there to find the home completely unsecured and open to whomever wanted to come in. After a heated conversation about the lack of security with Rachel and her publicist, Cy, Frank storms out, saying that he cannot take the job. Bill tries to convince him otherwise and shows him a threatening letter from the stalker who has already gotten into the home and masturbated on Rachel's bed. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't Rachel's bed, right? It was uh, the, the fake s- one. Yeah, yeah, the fake one for the magazine. I mean, it's a really nice bedroom. If you're going to masturbate in a bedroom, it might as well be that. He explains that Rachel's flippant attitude toward more security is because she is actually completely unaware of most of the events. Concerned for her safety and the safety of her son Fletcher, Frank takes the job on the condition that she is told about her stalker and begins to make security enhancements to the home and Rachel's life. Frank promotes Henry, the chauffeur, to his assistant and tries to institute his security changes, but is rebuffed by Rachel, her publicist, and her original bodyguard, Tony. The only person who tells Rachel to follow the new protocols is her sister, Nikki. After brunch one weekend, Frank notices a car following their limo back home. He springs into action, but loses the car on foot. Later, Frank learns that Cy has set a promotional performance at a nightclub where Rachel will sing her new song. While in her dressing room, Rachel overhears talk of the links the stalker has gone to in order to get to her and is convinced by Frank to leave the club. However, she doesn't want to upset her waiting fans and takes the stage anyway. During the performance, several male fans attempt to get on stage with her, and soon the entire queen of the night, (laughs) queen of the night, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. (laughs) That literally scared the shit out of me. (laughs) Well, now you know how she felt. That's right. During their performance, several male fans attempt to get on stage with her, and soon the entire club has erupted into riot. As Rachel is torn from the stage by the mob, Frank leaps into action and carries her out to her limo, waiting at a back entrance, while Tony waits for them at the proper exit at the front. Upset and embarrassed to be left behind, Tony comes back to Rachel's mansion and attempts to fight with Frank, but loses badly, and finally starts to respect him after Frank shows just how skilled he is with the kitchenware. (laughs) (laughs) touched by her rescue rachel slyly comes on to frank and explains that she likes to go on dates but as he would have to join her on any date she goes on settles a fucking freight train i know right so he should just ask her out himself which he does the two see a movie and head to a dive bar where they slow dance to the song i will always love you the worst rendition of which for real that guy was terrible that night at frank's place the two sleep together in the morning frank is angry and explains that he crossed a line and the two shouldn't have that kind of relationship for her safety this naturally upsets rachel and she starts to find ways to undermine his security and make him jealous while performing a series of benefit concerts in miami rachel hosts a lavish cocktail party in her suite Frank bumps into a former Secret Service colleague, Portman, who claims to be scoping out the party in case the governor decides to attend later. Rachel flirts with him and takes him to her room to make Frank jealous. She makes him leave, however, when he gets a little too rough. The next day, Frank is surprised to find Rachel and her entourage gone, and begins to search for them frantically until they arrive back from an impromptu shopping trip. Frank tells Rachel and Bill that he will get her safely back to LA, but then he's done. When Rachel receives a disturbing phone call from the stalker at the hotel, she finally begins to see the severity of the situation. She agrees to listen to Frank implicitly and allows him to take her, Fletcher, her sister Nikki, and Henry to a remote cabin in the woods belonging to Frank's dad, Herb. 
At the cabin, Rachel learns that Frank carries a lot of guilt about the assassination attempt of President Reagan because he wasn't there that day, for which he's never really forgiven himself. Later that night, while locking up, a very drunk Nikki comes on to Frank and demands to know what is going on between him and Rachel. He brushes her off, but definitely detects some jealousy from Nikki. The next day, Frank and his father discover mysterious footprints in the snow heading towards the boat dock. Frank can hear Rachel's son Fletcher start up the motorboat, and on a hunch, Frank races toward the dock to save him, knocking them both into the water as the boat heads driverless further into the lake. Rachel is furious and accuses Frank of overreacting when the boat suddenly explodes. The group decides to leave immediately, but all the cars have been disabled and the phone lines have been cut. They agree to walk out in the morning, but before the morning can come, Nikki, having another late-night drinking binge, confesses to Frank that she hired a hitman to kill Rachel out of her intense jealousy, but never wanted anything to happen to Fletcher. The hitman has been paid in full and will not stop until Rachel is dead. She doesn't even know who the hitman is, as he was hired anonymously. Nikki doesn't know who is sending the letters, since they started before she hired the hitman. Frank goes to investigate a strange noise, and the hitman, who has entered the cabin, shoots Nikki dead. The attacker escapes into the night, and Frank contacts the police, and gets to a phone booth to contact agents who have been helping him with the stalker case. Frank learns, from the other agents investigating the stalker for him, that a man in L.A. has been apprehended for sending the threatening letters. Frank now knows for certain that Rachel's would-be assassin and her stalker are two completely separate cases. Everyone returns to L.A. to bury Nikki and prepare for the Academy Awards, where Rachel is nominated for Best Actress. Backstage, Frank is told to disable his earpiece as it is interfering with microphones for the show. He again runs into Portman, who tells Frank that he is the bodyguard for the show's host. Badly shaken from her situation, Rachel has a meltdown on stage while presenting the Oscar for Best Song. She runs off stage and accuses Frank of ruining her with all of his precautions and making her crazy with anxiety. While the host is helping to calm her down, Frank learns that Portman is not his bodyguard at all. He's the hitman, and he is planning on killing Rachel in front of the crowd and all the cameras. Frank nervously watches the crowd as Rachel takes her seat for the Best Actress announcement. She wins and begins the longest walk to the stage ever. <laughs> <laughs> really, this is why nobody watches the Oscars if it takes her 15 minutes to walk to the fucking stage. <laughs> and frankly, those people who just won Best Sound were sitting in like the third row. That doesn't happen. <laughs> Frank spots Portman holding a camera to his shoulder to hide his gun. While Rachel accepts her award, Frank shoots from across the stage but only wounds Portman and frightens the crowd. Portman again aims at Rachel, but Frank runs and leaps in front of the bullets. Lying shot on the stage, Frank shoots Portman in the face. As Frank bleeds out onto the stage, Rachel holds and comforts him until paramedics can arrive. Later, while still recovering from his bullet wounds, Frank sees Rachel and her new bodyguard off at the airport. They say their goodbyes, and Rachel gets on the plane. As the plane starts to taxi, Rachel panics and tells the pilot to wait. She runs off the plane and into Frank's arms for a final, passionate kiss. If I <laughs> should stay I would only be in your way. <laughs> so I'll go. But I know. <laughs> I'll be holding on to that raggedy ass doll every step of the way. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> the end. I want I want there to be a how it should have ended, you know that series on YouTube mm-hmm. with the bodyguard. There's so many moments where this whole thing should have ended, right? <laughs> like within Frank the first thirty minutes. The pl- <laughs> Frank <laughs> Frank jumps onto the boat and he is completely <laughs> destroyed by the propeller. <laughs> <laughs> or it's the beginning of the movie and she's sitting next to the doll and it explodes. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, "I would have burned it all." Bam. And it becomes a movie about physical therapy. (laughs) (laughs) We've seen enough of those. Well, that's, um, 
That's a lot going on for a romantic comedy thriller film. It is. Um, and one thing that's just not in the synopsis is just all, all of that stuff about the stalker, you know, because it's there's no story point to it. There's no plot point to it other than just kind of showing the audience, you know, this red herring, essentially. Yeah. But um, it's it's a huge part of what makes it a thriller is just those scenes of the stalker kind of putting those letters together and like talking the way that he talks. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> what a gifted actor that Mommy. <laughs> Mommy. <laughs> anyway. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we digress. Yes. <clears throat> The Bodyguard was released in the U.S. on November 25th, 1992 in 1,700 theaters, where it grossed $16.6 million in its opening weekend, ranking third right behind Home Alone 2 and Aladdin, and just above Dracula. The film spent 10 weeks in the top 10, ultimately grossing $411 million worldwide against a budget of $25 million. So definitely a hit. The soundtrack was released a few weeks prior to the film and became the best-selling soundtrack of all time, selling more than 45 million copies worldwide. Houston's single of I Will Always Love You sold 20 million copies, separate from the album. The album featured five songs by Houston, all of which became hits, and songs from Kenny G, Lisa Stanfield, among others. Although I would say that they're performed by Houston, but not necessarily written by her. Yeah. A lot of them probably are not, but... I actually don't think any of them are. I don't think she's much of a songwriter, right? What does it say, though? This is the Heartbreak Hotel. Ho, oh, God, now we've just moved on to other Whitney's. <laughs> <laughs> it's not right, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Since its release, the film has been parodied many times, including such movies or TV shows as The Simpsons, 30 Rock, In Living Color, Bulletproof, and The Hitman's Bodyguard. Also, a musical version of the film opened in London's West End in 2012 and is still touring nationally in the U.S. I don't think it ever made it to Broadway, but it's constantly touring. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Uh, the Bodyguard received mixed to negative reviews upon its release. It currently holds a 33% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 64%. The consensus reads, The Bodyguard is a cheesy, melodramatic potboiler with moments of electricity from Whitney Houston. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess. <laughs> something from Whitney Houston. <laughs> Moments of something. Owen Gilberman of Entertainment Weekly gave the film a particularly harsh review, writing, To say that Houston and Crossner fail to strike would be putting it mildly. The movie gives us two self-contained celebrity icons working hard to look as if they want each other. It's like watching two statues attempting to mate. <laughs> I had to put that in there because it was like the best fucking review. <laughs> and he's not wrong. Roger Ebert praised the film, giving it three out of four stars. He wrote, The movie does contain a love story, but it's the kind of guarded passion that grows between two people who spend a lot of time keeping their priorities straight. Okay. That <laughs> just sounds so romantic. So The Bodyguard received two Academy Award nominations for uh, Best Original Song, Run to You, and I Have Nothing. It won three Grammys, Album of the Year, Record of the Year, Best Female Pop Performance, and was nominated for Best Song Made for a TV or Movie, and Best Female R&B Performance. At the MTV Movie Awards, it got one win for Best Song and six nominations, including Best Male Performance, Best Female Performance, Best Breakthrough, Most Desirable Male, and Best On-Screen Duo. So no accounting for taste, I guess. Uh, the Golden Raspberry Awards really loved this one, giving it seven nominations, including Worst Picture, Worst Actor, Worst Actress, Worst Screenplay, Worst New Star, and Worst Original Song. I wonder which one actors and actresses is like serious ones don't want to get more, an MTV Movie Award or a Golden Raspberry? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like MTV is just like celebrating the worst in film or whatever, but... I don't know. I mean, I'd kind of like to have a Golden Raspberry. So that worst song nominee for the Golden Raspberries was Queen of the Night, by yeah. the way. Have you seen Halle Berry's acceptance speech for uh, Cat, for Catwoman? No, when she won the Razzie? At the Razzie? <laughs> yeah, it's it's brilliant. She gave the most brilliant acceptance speech. It's like 10 minutes long. It's amazing. We'll I have to look that up. I do know that Sandra Bullock showed up. Sandra Bullock yeah. was good, too. She was passing out copies of her movie to people. <laughs> <laughs> just like straight out of the bargain bin at Walmart. 
Oh, shit. It also made AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs. Which one? I'll, I'll Always Love You. I'll Always yeah. Love You. Yeah. And um, it made Razzie's The 100 Most Enjoyably Bad Movies Ever Made. That's actually a good list. I need to watch. I need to look at that I know. List. I kind of want to start like a separate podcast and start crossing off those hundred. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, Patreon, come on. <laughs> I feel like we've watched a good 10 of them, at least here. On the <laughs> <laughs> They're probably the ones that I chose. God. Okay. So let's get into the bodyguard. Um, I had not seen this movie since I was uh, a teenager. Clearly. I mean, and I think that when I watched it last, I started it in the middle because it was showing on like TBS or something one day. I don't know. It's been a very, very long time. Wow. In fact, I have forgot a lot of what happened in the movie, you know? I was too young to see it in theaters, um, but I probably saw it in 1993 as soon as it was available for rent or whatever. And my parents, uh, we all watched it together. And my sister and I basically became obsessed with it. And it's especially the soundtrack. Uh, We might have even started listening to the soundtrack first, but actually I don't think so because I remember we would, (laughs) we would actually like uh, listen to the credits because they would play queen of the night. And back when I was a kid, queen of the night was my favorite track of this movie. Um, Now, of course it's not, but you know, I, I just I have so many memories of watching this movie as a kid with my sister <laughs> and listening to this uh the soundtrack. And I've seen it a couple times since. Uh definitely not something that's a staple of mine, but I don't know. Like I think I saw it maybe in my twenties, uh early twenties, and then I think it's been that long since I saw it. And yeah, I'd forgotten some things too. I know that I had the soundtrack before I saw the movie. My mother saw this in the theater, um, I don't know who she went with. It wasn't me, but she just loved it. She still loves it. And um, she bought the soundtrack. And, you know, I sort of fell in love with I Will Always Love You or Whitney Houston's version of that song from hearing it on the radio so much. So I quickly absconded with that CD and like committed the entire thing to memory. All over the radio back then. Yes, it was a huge hit. Huge. But yeah, I love, love, love this soundtrack. I listen to it all the time. In fact, you and I bonded over this fairly early in our friendship, didn't we? I mean, I think at some point one of us was singing I have nothing and yes we had there there was a a drunken night where everyone else all the conversations had to die because me and you were singing tracks on the book <laughs> everyone else was so annoyed yeah so yeah the soundtrack was amazing um I mean, I still love these songs. In fact, I have nothing as like one of my karaoke staples, but I only do that when it's like a really private karaoke situation. I know I can <laughs> sing the song, but I'm too scared to get up in front of a huge group just for fear that I can't sound like Whitney Houston. <laughs> no, this needs to be sung in a group, not a karaoke. It needs to be sung from the heart, ugly, as it well, were. I can accomplish that for sure. <laughs> Let me hold you in my arms. And keep you safe from harm. I wanna run to you. See, it's not as fun when you don't sing with me. Well, I was getting scared about hitting that next high note, that ooh, ooh, or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Tell me, will you stay? Oh, will you? Run away. <laughs> of course, if you ever want to like get like all the queers in the house, just just wait to just that part where it's like, um, don't you dare! <laughs> I have to stamp my foot every me. time. <laughs> I'm like, don't you dare! <laughs> Shake my finger and get all into that shit. Good God, I love the Bodyguard soundtrack. I mean, the movie's got some faults, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get into in a minute. You know what I mean? But oh, like. Yeah. Musically, well, at least like the vocal performance is part of the soundtrack. There's no problem with that. I love every single one of those songs. And the Golden Raspberries can suck it because I even like Queen of the Night. <laughs> so um, who composed the music for this movie? Alan Silvestri. And I think it's a really classic like 90s thriller score. Like yeah. it adds almost a somber, melancholic note that um, you see in 
all of those, you know, especially like Silence of the Lambs or Copycat, it's very reminiscent of that feel, that vibe. Right. And so it fits really, really well into that. And I've, I've listened to the soundtrack. Um, it's always been, at least the suite, I think, has been part of my playlists for film scores just forever. It's nothing incredibly special, but it's enough there that just kind of, uh, you know, reminds me of the movie and reminds me of that time. Because it is the DNA of the of the early to mid '90s thriller is just all over it, and um, it's just I, I just remembered it as soon as I saw the opening and it's playing that kind of that melancholic thriller theme, you know, it's just like oh shit, man, like this is definitely I wasn't wrong, you know, because I was thinking I was trying to surprise you, we kind of try and surprise each other with stuff that we either haven't the other hasn't seen, or um, that we'll just get a kick out of. Uh, for our Flamers flashbacks over on Patreon. And I wanted, to, I just thought, I was like, wow, this is something that we both love, but we hadn't really thought of as a thriller. And it's right there on Wikipedia, it even says it's a romantic thriller, right? Yep. And you can definitely make an argument for that. And so that's why it's here. And that's what we're doing. So it'll be interesting to see what people think of this episode and whether they kind of, kind of think of it in the same way uh, once they start thinking about it to begin with. That's right. So, you know, listeners, before you judge, hold off until our questions at the end of the episode, like we always have, we'll make our case for whether or not this is a horror movie, and then you can come for us on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So, speaking for coming for people, what did you think about this cast? (laughs) (laughs) I thought the cast was mostly okay. (laughs) Yeah? Like, um, I mean, Whitney Houston is not a terrible actress, you know, I mean, I don't know. We might be looking through this at a weirdly rose-tinted nostalgia lens, though. But I mean, that scene where she's standing in the driveway and coming on to Frank, right? And she's like sort of like tripping over her words and acting shy and girlish in her own Rachel Marin way or whatever. I was just like, this is okay. This is decent, decent acting from somebody for a first time, you know? And she had spent a lot of time in the limelight up until then. And this was a pretty big deal for her to be in this movie, in this starring role. Yeah. And I mean, I for for someone, let's just say this. I would say before this movie, though, she was nowhere near as big of a star as Rachel Marin is in the film. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, she had a couple albums and things like that, you know, but no, Rachel Marin's character is supremely larger than what I love about, about this, though, is that it's like art really or life imitated art imitated life, you know, because this soundtrack just catapulted her into the into the the limelight in a way that her career just wasn't before, in my opinion. Uh, until I Will Always Love You in the Bodyguard soundtrack and the Bodyguard movie, she was, you know, a pop star, you know, uh, you know, or a star, but she wasn't anything like that, which she would after after this. It would always be her legacy is this song. You know, and I, for the most part, when when pop stars or music stars start making movies, I don't always enjoy their performances and I don't always think that they act very well. See mm-hmm. my read of Lady Gaga, you know, from A Star Is Born. Um, or American Horror Story, for that matter. Sure. I just, I just don't think that they oftentimes cross over well. However, I know a lot of people sort of like pick on her for this role, Whitney Houston, and I just don't see a whole lot of like merit to that. I think that she was serviceable and yeah. and fine. You know, she acted yeah, much better than Kevin Costner did. For this God's movie sakes. and the soundtrack wouldn't have been anything like it would have without her voice. Yeah. Because back then she was the voice. And I think, I mean, like, I think this movie was written for somebody else. Yeah. Stay tuned for my fun facts. Okay. Cause I, good. Cause I cannot put my finger on who it was. I know that I've heard that story before, but it wasn't Whitney Houston, you know? So no, it wasn't. Um, I don't know. Kevin Costner in this movie, let's talk about him for a minute because he acts like fucking cardboard really in this movie. That's his cadence. That's just how he is in everything. Uh, and if you want the stoic, earnest, character then you put him in things like the bodyguard or dances with wolves or the untouchables that was a good movie yeah um i'm not a big fan of kevin costner never have been you know i just i just don't i don't something about him doesn't sit right with me he's kind of attractive to look at you know and but i don't every time i see him in a movie i just feel really bored half the time at least with him yeah i think that he has to be in a certain role for him to work because if he's not just a straw man, you know, character, essentially like a straw man argument where it's like, you know, either it's a like a 
a perfectly bad opinion or a perfectly good one. Like he has to almost be set up in a contrived situation where he is just the perfect person in a way. And almost all of his roles I, I find are, are that way, you know, like this leading man stereotype. And I think that's the only thing that he can really play. Well, I've never seen him in a comedy. Um, Bull Durham where he was, where, you know, where he was supposed to be funny. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about the supporting characters in this movie? What'd you think about I them? I thought they were fine. I thought they were well cast, especially Cy. I thought, you know, yeah. uh, and Tony, I thought they were great. Cy is the publicist and he's just like this fucking ratty opportunist. And the character played him wonderfully because you end up hating him and it takes a skilled actor for you to do that. And uh, Tony kind of does the same thing. And he just he just played his role really, really well. And I feel like everyone really does. Um, I thought everyone was either sort of serviceable or better than that. Uh, the guy that played Kevin Costner's dad was especially good. Yes, I he, was he was a excellent. delightful old man. <laughs> and just... the driver for the limo was excellent. Yes. And Fletcher, the kid, was excellent. So, And I was especially impressed with uh, Michelle Lamar Richards, who plays Nikki. Like, I thought that she did a good job. Her sister, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so she she really has, she can give looks. Like, you can tell that she's incredibly jealous from the moment that we meet her. And, I mean, it really takes a good actress to keep that performance up for such I a small role. She was jealous, but, you know, at first I, I just figured that she felt really unappreciated. And I think that that feeling of, you know, being unappreciated or relegated to almost as an assistant, which she basically was, um... And I think she actually was the official assistant to her sister. And I, I think all of that fed into the existing jealousy that she had, you know, and it just. Do you remember you know. that scene where she's like sort of like working out or really she looks like she's just like dancing and he and Kevin Costner catches her from behind and comes into her small little area. And she's like, oh, yeah, this, yeah. this is my shameless wall of, you know, myself. And. Mm-hmm. You know, he asks, he's like, well, why didn't you continue on? And she's like, well, it's clear who the star is in the family or whatever. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, it's just like small, hmm. <laughs> yeah, small lines like that and small looks from her. And I mean, the way that like Whitney Houston's character, Rachel, is always cutting her off when she's talking. She's like, you should listen. And then she, Rachel starts talking, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, of course, this bitch is pissed. <laughs> Jesus. I didn't remember that blender scene. <laughs> she's like, you need to talk. You need to <laughs> think about your son. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know what? If my sister did that to me, that blender would be all over her face. <laughs> I'd have been like, how do I get on the dark web to get a hit man? <laughs> so, yeah. No, I mean, like, the acting is good. The casting was good. I mean, I, I don't think that's a real negative aspect to this movie, really. Yeah, but that thing about, you know, um, Frank Farmer or, <laughs> you know, Kevin Costner, like... It just seems like some of those scenes seem like setups, you know, for Frank to seem cool. Like the Frank versus Tony scene is so contrived. And the fact that Tony is not angry and just leaves after that, he's just like, oh, now he respects him because he's like a dog that was trained or something. It's like, what? (laughs) And then like every time he saves someone, he's so damn lucky that something's actually happening. For sure. (laughs) <laughs> like when he well we'll get into to this some of the scenes later let's start from the top though um the house <laughs> my god i love that house oh yeah i mean i would live there at I, least the outside the grounds i mean because it looks like it looks like some sort of like grecian statuary you know from the outside and then you get in there and there's like i was just like okay no the the inside is not not that good. except for that bedroom that bedroom's pretty amazing yeah when I first watched this movie, I thought like, and my sister actually, when we just watched it, um, she thought like the mute when they go into that bedroom, we, she thought like the music actually was turned on when they opened and walked into the room. They like that was like a speaker within the room. Oh, instead of the Share TV. My life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, just a- but it was the soundtrack. I was like, no, it's the soundtrack. Like, <laughs> it's not. But um, I thought it was playing from a TV in that bedroom. That's later on. That's at that that night where he's like oh, watching okay. her shit or whatever. And she spies him like looking at her music video and he is just like drinking and staring at it. And I'm like, that's kind of <laughs> creepy. He's just drinking orange juice, though. I mean, come on. 
But yeah, so um, the house, amazing. Uh, however, I do like that entry scene where he's like trying to get into the house and it's so super easy for him, right? Yeah, and he says three different names like, and people don't understand, like Thomas Edison or whatever he says. <laughs> like, I think it's funny because I'm pretty sure most of those people don't even know who Thomas Edison is. They'll be like, <laughs> no. okay, it's fine. Come on in. Was he a pop star? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, I do want to talk about, um, the whole like queen of the night sequence. I loved all of like the costume stuff that was going on. Oh my God. You know, of course I love that song and the, (laughs) the cape. That's another thing that you need. That cape is fucking everything. When she's just walking around. I mean, I don't care what's underneath it because that is far less impressive to me. But just that cape, I think, looks so iconic. You know what I mean? And I think that's what's on the cover of like the soundtrack, at least, is like her face framed with that cape around it. You know? Well, it's it's him actually holding holding her in that cape and her... No, actually, she's not in the cape in that. Uh, the soundtrack, you're right. This, the cover of the soundtrack is just her in the cape. Right. But the, the poster for the movie is him holding her, and she's looking away or whatever. Cowering into his shoulder. His Carrying neck. her away, yeah. yeah. But yeah, he has to rescue her after she's like pulled into the pulled into the crowd or whatever. And I think this is kind of where the movie picks up and takes off. Agreed. For real. Like it starts, although you do see it that you are kind of teased at the beginning with that exploding <laughs> fucking ratchet doll. Seriously, though, I mean, like that was the ugliest fucking Barbie doll ever, and they're just like gingerly taking it into room, like, oh, she's gonna love this, and they put it down. I'm like, Nobody would love that doll, and then it explodes. Yeah, Jesus. But yeah, I mean, we we needed to see Rachel in some real danger. Like, I mean, in order for the movie to progress from that point, she needed to understand the danger firsthand. And it seems like at every fucking turn, she learns what the danger is firsthand and then just goes against it anyway or whatever. But that particular moment was the first time watching watching this last time that I was starting to get on board with all this. Like, this is really horror adjacent because that's a really frightening moment for any sort of performer to get on stage and have people just sort of like storm it and take you over you know especially since you had just went on there you're like no i have to live my life i can't just you know let someone ruin my career and then this shit happens and i was just like god that's got to be terrifying for her in real life you know and then you i think by this point we see you know the the perspective view of the stalker putting that letter together or another letter together and then we see at the end that they're picking up her glove from the floor as they're sweeping up and everything. And right. So we, we're constantly reminded of the stalkers, very real, very close. Um, well, yeah, because he's, you know, he's in her limo her. at one point when they're getting it washed, right? He's like... Yeah, he's in the car. They're, they're going through the car wash and he like, sneaks in during the car wash or whatever. And he's like, oh. <laughs> it's like digging for treasure in the seats and he pulls out a picture and he's just like, yay! You know? <laughs> And that's when we oh. finally get to see the stalker's face, right? It's when he's, he puts that picture in his like locker shrine to Rachel. And what Marin. is it about? Is he albino? Is that is that what it I, is? He's just really unfortunate looking. It's really I, well, what it is, not but. just yeah. I mean, he's separate issues other than being albino. But I mean, like, I feel like albino people have it really bad in movies. Like, they need to stop, <laughs> like making them like evil bad guys or whatever, or, like crazy. I'm a, I'm, I know somebody who's albino and she's perfectly lovely. She has, there's no shrine locker or anything like that. <laughs> that you know of. <laughs> that I know of. I really haven't seen her locker, but I don't know. I don't. I mean, I don't know that he was really albino, though. I think he was just like some pasty, blonde-haired stalker. I don't, I mean, I don't know. They, they really went out of their way to make him look um, crazy, right? Yeah. But... And I mean, and in subsequent scenes featuring the stalker, he is literally certifiable. So, yep. So then there's that scene of uh, Frank teaching Tony that we already kind of mentioned in the kitchen or whatever, and he just keeps going back and back. And it's one of those contrived scenes, I feel like, where it's just like, Frank is perfect, you know? And that was the best acting moment from Kevin Costner in this movie, though, because he's just very quietly like drinking his juice, Shelby. And, um, <laughs> Whenever uh, Tony pulls that knife out and Frank hears it, he looks up and gives this little look to him. And I was just like, there, that that's all the acting no, that we can expect that, from Kevin Costner. I actually <laughs> love that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes because it's all done with absolutely zero dialogue. Yeah. 
And then at the end, like it is extended, it's like a good five minutes long or whatever, where they're kind of going back and forth. And at the end, he's like, I don't want to talk about this again. Yeah. Even though they hadn't talked. And it's just one of the best lines in the whole movie. Yeah, it's seriously, just a really it was good so scene. funny. <laughs> yeah. And then no thriller is complete without a cabin in the woods. <laughs> yes. I mean, a cabin in the snowy woods. So here's the one part about the score that I didn't really care for. Up until then, I was totally on board with it. But the minute they start showing like the grounds of the cabin, right? The music starts to take this like simple gifts sort of americana sound to it and i was like this is a little too on the nose alan like come on now. we're in the country now <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, but yeah the cabin was a, a really nice break from the movie i liked the way that the characters sort of like grow together and that's when we sort of like get you know the denouement to the story itself yeah. Although there is another contrived thing with the, the motorboat where like he's so lucky. <laughs> you know, he like on a hunt, she like runs after Fletcher as soon as he hears the, and this is like makes a leaping dive into the frozen water, you know? So Fletcher and him are like freezing to death. And uh, meanwhile, the boat explodes. Right. But that could have easily been like, not the thing that the assassin was doing could have been hiding in the boathouse to snipe or something, you know, it's like, so he could have been running and jumping and like (laughs) taking Fletcher into the water. Meanwhile, the guy's so like, okay. And snipes Rachel (laughs) on the shore. There's so many things. He wants to protect all of them, Chris. He wants to protect all of them. Why didn't the guy just snipe her ass while she was singing, Jesus loves me. My God. (laughs) Cause that doesn't make for good movies. Jesus loves me. Because <laughs> that's not the right time to kill somebody. They're like praying. God. And Plus, then her sister continues. Oh, yes, he does. <laughs> Lawrence Kasdan knows how to write a better movie than that. Come on. Yeah. <clears throat> we need to talk so, about yeah. him later on in this podcast, too. I like yeah, Lawrence uh, Yeah, I, I will. Um so, and then we get to the Oscars, <laughs> which seems like an incredibly small venue. Maybe that was just how it was. Yeah. You know, were they at the, the, are they, it's the Kodak theater, right? And I don't think that's where they were for this movie. No. I mean, so, so here's, here's what I thought about the whole Oscar sequence, right? Which takes a good chunk of time. Now this is somebody from somebody, this is coming from somebody who loves the Oscars. Like I love them so much yeah. that I have one tattooed on me. Yeah. And there's no way in hell that this is even close to what the Oscars are like. Obviously, we know that, right? But the very first shot of the the venue that they were in, I swear to God, is taken right from the Golden Girls. Anytime they have like an exterior shot in the Golden Girls, it's that fucking building. (laughs) (laughs) I loved the cameo by Debbie Reynolds, though. Oh, yeah. I was was crazy. Was like, that was so random i had completely forgotten about it <laughs> completely and i'm sure that she would i mean she probably was backstage at the oscars saying shit about like that to people anyway <laughs> so, <laughs> you know? um but yeah i was just like i don't know this oscar and when she gets there and goes straight to the green room i mean like do you get to do that you just go backstage and hang out for an extended period of time maybe um, if you're up for one of the biggies which she was so by this point, like I had totally forgotten about the um, friend being the hitman. Like I really oh, yeah. thought it was the sister doing all of it, and then by the time the sister got shot, oh my God, I was really? like, "Oh yeah, yeah." It's a it's a classic twist. It's twist <laughs> where you think it's a stalker, and then it's actually the assassin. But you know, whatever they were apprehended, or you know, the stalker is apprehended while they're in, um, you know, the snowy mountain cabin in the woods and um yeah that's when you find out that you know but he already had been told by the sister that was like a little hole for me when i watched it this time it was like he'd already been told by the sister that it's an assassin like a professional assassin person hitman and uh he witnesses the guy and runs after him obviously with some training um and escapes meanwhile he still goes to that payphone he's like i got the stalker and they're like, no, we have a stalker. And he's like, what? And it's like, you know, as a hitman, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> this hitman is not going into masturbating on the sheets. <laughs> That's what albinos do. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I already defended them. They know I'm joking. <laughs> do they? Are you quite sure? I hope so. I was joking. I mean, 
if you're not gonna where else do you masturbate besides the bedroom i mean it's the perfect place break into someone's house masturbate in the bedroom you know masturbate in the kitchen yeah but okay i'm not gonna go to someone's house. Go to someone else's bed and just like do it on the <laughs> i'm sure she had some kleenex in there somewhere or maybe a wayward sock <laughs> <laughs> Look, now where is Rachel Barrett's cum rack? It's gotta be around somewhere. <laughs> there was plenty of silk hanging from the ceiling. Look, I don't pretend to know the inner workings of the stalker, so and I don't think any of us does. <laughs> Mommy? No. Mommy? No. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> it's just like I could tell by his voice that he was super serial. <laughs> <laughs> the kid did not have that deep of a voice anyway. She's like, Fletcher? <laughs> like, that was such a goddamn kid. <laughs> are you stupid? <laughs> like, you are stupid. You probably would have taken that raggedy ass doll and started brushing his hair before it exploded. God. <laughs> Well, she's not the only one. Like, she attracts stupid. Size stupid. Tony's stupid. For real. Yeah. I mean, Bill's like the only person around her that makes any sense. Aside feel, from her sister who wants her, her dead. <laughs> <laughs> and Frank's fucking stupid. I mean, like, he takes his client on a date, has sex with her, then refuses to talk to her after that, loses her when he's mad at her for quote unquote cheating on him, and then he nearly kills her child. He's a horrible bodyguard. He really is. <laughs> i don't know there was no indication in kevin costner's face that he was remotely attracted to her before they had sex you know what i mean it's just like when they were kissing it There's really didn't look like two steps anything else make. either okay <laughs> <laughs> however it's a blank cardboard canvas for real um, so I was watching the movie last night and singing along with it. And my husband came into the room and he was like, did they cut, did you cut the scarf yet? And I was just <laughs> like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, I forgot about that shit, dude. I so, always remember that scene. It's a really good scene. Like, cause it's on their date and, and, uh, he has this katana sword. And so she is putting up this, um, she's like playing around with it. And he's like trying to show her how sharp it is. So he takes her scarf and just drops it. And it just cuts it in half just from floating down, you know, on top of the sword. That she's pointing at him. Yeah. And then they and then have they, sex. Yeah, and then they have sex. <laughs> I don't know. I think they have their priorities straight. I think Roger Ebert was wrong. <laughs> they do not have their priorities straight. <laughs> if somebody's pointing a sword at me, my first in- inclination is not going to be, God, I wish you'd take your clothes off right now. Anywho. Yeah. So, yeah. Um... But no conversation about the bodyguard would be complete without talking about the airplane scene. Mm-hmm. Because, my God. I did get teary-eyed. I was full-on crying. I was bawling. As, like, melodramatic as it is, it's just so, like, you're like, oh, my God, they're just going to leave it like that? They're going to, like, I remember watching it for the first time, and, I, and then she stops the plane, and I'm like, yes, yeah, stop the plane! Get I know! Plane. <laughs> I'm telling you, because I totally forgot. I forgot how the movie even ended. Really? And so she I'm was jealous. on the plane, and I was like, well, this is kind of anticlimactic, but I guess it makes sense because it's his character and blah, blah, blah. And then when she goes, wait! I mean, tears were streaming down my face. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, Thank God. I was like, they love each other. And then I had to start <laughs> laughing because it ruined by fucking Kevin Costner because they just basically, Whitney Houston's trying to sell it, you know, and she like goes up there and runs to his arms and they lock lips and then he just doesn't move. Yeah. And so it's just the panning camera around them. <laughs> you know, the, the camera's like circling around them and they just don't move. They're just, faces are just attached and nothing's happening. It's so weird. I think it's safe so to say that in the sequel to the Bodyguard, they they're probably divorced. I mean, so. <laughs> oh. But yeah, I can't remember back when I was younger watching this, and I thought that was a real iconic kind of kiss, you know, with the painting camera and everything. And I don't know. I guess if I if I like fantasize about like you know, big kisses or whatever. That's kind of the shot that I want. I want the camera panning around me the whole fucking time, even though I've yeah. never actually like had a kiss like that. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know. And so is she, I can't remember now. Like is she, she is actually performing. I will always love you. That's her final shot. And then it shows him like protecting that clergyman. Yeah, I think so. 
and then it just like freeze frames on his face for an extended period of time before it cuts to credit. Yeah, it's like this is Jesus. It was like I thought. I almost thought like the credits were going to be like bodyguards are like a dying breed or something, and blah 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 blah. <laughs> or you know, like Frank Farmer went on to do the blah blah blah. You know, like it <laughs> seemed like it was going to do that sort of thing, and I'm like, why did you end in this weird frozen hero shot? With- <laughs> They didn't like, have to freeze the frame. He barely moves anyway. I mean, they could have just kept it rolling and he would have stood perfectly still. <laughs> God. Oh, fuck well, me. Well, I've got some fun facts for you. Good. I'm really looking forward to these. So Lawrence Kasdan, and we did want to talk about him. He uh, has been the writer for like Star Wars movies, Indiana Jones movies, frequent collaborator uh, with uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. So he wrote this movie actually in the mid seventies. Right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, as an original, uh, originally as a vehicle for Steve McQueen and oh. Diana Ross. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now I recall reading that. <laughs> I, the dream girl herself. I kind of would have loved to see that actually. And then it was going to be made again, uh, and, and actually it was uh, it was actually viewed, it was not made because it was viewed as too controversial. Why? Black and white. Oh, in the 70s. Yeah, I get it. So later on it was going to be made again, but Diana Ross was in a relationship with the person that it was going to be that wasn't Steve McQueen, but they had like weird, you know, irreconcilable differences, and so the movie wasn't made because they hated each other. So then I guess it was just passed around, passed around, passed around. I think it was actually rejected by different uh, studios, I think 60 times Jesus. before finally it was it was finally made. Now, Kevin Costner said that he actually based his portrayal on uh, Fra- uh, a Frank Farmer on actor Steve McQueen. He even went as far as to get the McQueen, uh, get McQueen's trademark haircut for the yep. role. I was going to say, I mean, there were times watching that movie, now that you've mentioned his name, I was like, I can totally see Steve McQueen in Kevin Costner's performance, right? Even from the way he delivers dialogue, especially that line that he delivers in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. the haircut, the look, it's very Steve McQueen. And I don't hate that. I love Steve McQueen, you know, but I also love Lawrence Kasdan quite a bit. And like, I'm always surprised when I look through his filmography and how much stuff that he has done. But um, he did, he directed and wrote, Dreamcatcher, which yep. is one of my favorite Stephen King adaptations, and one of my favorite romantic comedies of all time, French Kiss. So I, I mean, like my childhood owes a lot to Lawrence Kasdan, quite a bit, yeah. as yours does, you know. So sure. So Pat Benatar, Olivia Newton-John, Madonna, <gasps> Joan Jett, <gasps> Debbie Harry, I'm out of breath. <laughs> Janet Jackson, <laughs> Terry Nunn, Kim Carnes, and Dolly Parton herself <laughs> were considered for the role of Rachel Marin. Although Kevin Costner, who was also producer of the film reportedly denied Madonna an audition because she had made a gag joke at his expense in Madonna truth or dare from 1991. <laughs> I forgot. I, I want to know what that is. I've forgotten. Now I, I think I, I kind of watched parts of it 15 years ago, 20 years ago or something. And I never, it's just Madonna being a bitch for like 90 minutes, but really good. <laughs> um, I kind of like that entire list actually. Cause I, I love me some like eighties rocker ladies, you know, I mean, it's just like, so really anybody in that list, I would have loved to have seen or like hear some of the music that they would have done for it. However, I think it would have been completely different than what we got from Whitney Houston. <laughs> Dolly Parton. <laughs> yeah. I, maybe that's the one. I mean, like Dolly Parton shouldn't be, doing that but i don't know um but again like you know we always talk about hindsight and i i don't think i can see anybody but whitney houston playing this part yeah if they Mm -hmm. remade this movie today who do you think would beyonce oh yeah beyonce would be great you're right because immediately i would think of like gaga but no 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 like beyonce would be incredible on that and i think there's a remake being made so it wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't her or someone like her but um, yeah, there was also theoretically um, going to be a sequel, you know, but it was going to be about uh, Kevin Costner's character, Frank Farmer, getting over her death because she would have been assassinated after he left. Uh, and then him and his new whoever he was with for, you know, so I don't know. I think that dumber. obviously is. Yeah. So that's probably why it was never fucking made, you know. But um, anyway, moving on. Continue. Rachel's mansion is the same mansion as the horse's head in the bed mansion in The Godfather. Really? 
Mm-hmm. And the cabin is the same one from Fallen. Just kidding. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> and the cabin is every cabin in the woods in every movie ever. No. <laughs> every 90s thriller. So Rachel and Frank go to see Yojimbo from 1961 for their date night, which was released in the United States as The Bodyguard. And of course, in Japanese, that's what it means. Well, that's very on the nose. I didn't mm-hmm. know that, though. So uh, apparently Whitney's acting may have been pretty bad as the the film had to be hastily recut to give her more subtle performance after test audiences gave their feedback. And um, Whitney Houston theoretically gave Kevin Costner singing lessons on the set in exchange for acting advice. And she stated that he taught her to communicate with her body and her eyes in addition to just playing the lines. So some of this may be like not really true or apocryphal so i just want to put that caveat on there but it sounds legit (laughs) i mean i'm sure she learned all she could from him (laughs) well he fought he campaigned for her to get the role um you know uh, there was a lot of people and uh and he really fought for her and because the studio was like no she's never acted before no it's not gonna work black and white it's not gonna work but obviously you know it did money wise and obviously it stood the test of time it's um you know, a fairly iconic film. It's certainly the soundtrack is. But um, Kevin Costner is actually the one who suggested the film end with I Will Always Love You after What Becomes of the Brokenhearted was used for Fried Green Tomatoes, which is what they were originally going to do. That same song? Uh, what Becomes of the Brokenhearted, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, this is a better better choice. Yeah. So the camera operator riding the dolly rail during the uh, the airplane scene where the camera revolves around Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston fell off when the, 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 the <laughs> centrifugal force surprised him while shooting the scene. The cameraman climbed back onto the rigging during the filming to retain operation, finishing the scene, and it's that's what you see in the movie. So that maybe why they were frozen in that kiss is because they were trying not to laugh or react. <laughs> <laughs> because the guy filming fell off and had to scramble to run back on it while it's revolving. <laughs> oh my god. They better thank their lucky fucking stars that I was not on the set that day. I would have ruined everything. <laughs> I had to reshoot the entire fucking scene because my cackles would have been heard from like miles away. It's not a cackle. <laughs> when you see someone fall, it's more like <laughs> an explosion of sh- shrieking laughter. Because people falling down is the funniest thing ever. (laughs) So last one. Kevin Costner revealed recently, almost 27 years after the release of The Bodyguard, that the the woman he is carrying on the movie poster wasn't Whitney Houston, but her double. Whitney had left the, uh, the set to have some rest, so Kevin Costner decided to shoot the picture with her double. He only told her to keep her face hidden so she could show the fear that the character was experiencing. Costner himself picked the definitive photo that was later used in the movie poster. So wow. if you look at the movie poster, you can't see her face. Right. So, yeah, it's her that. double. <laughs> it's not her body. Oh he just really was swinging his executive producer arms around, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. those were good that made me laugh i like it uh so here at the film flamers we ask a series of questions about every movie that we watch and the bodyguard is no different so first up chris is the bodyguard a horror movie you know i don't know that it's a straight up horror movie but it's definitely got some adjacency and i think that um, you know, thriller has always flirted with horror or been under the its umbrella, or if you don't want to call it uh, horror, you can call it macabre or whatever. But uh, definitely this has its place, I would say, related to with a lot of its DNA to things like Silence of the Lambs and, and some of the others. It definitely has those echoes in it, especially with the scenes with the stalker where you're seeing those, you know, exploding ratchet dolls and the you know the um the putting together of those letters and like and all of those red herrings with the, the you know the creepiness and the phone calls you know and the masturbating on the bed and stuff like this is adult thriller stuff you know and then later on we've get you know um kind of you know a halloween uh you know ish uh stalker bit with uh you know the assassin in the cabin in the woods at night you know there's kind of uh, that element of the slasher 
right? And of course, we get all those action beats uh, with the you know the boat exploding and and just the ever present danger that she's in and being watched and everything else. And so there's a lot of different elements from horror um, subgenres in here, not just thriller. And so I feel like that's a really good case for it to be kind of included. Uh, at least partially in, you know, under the the horror umbrella. Yeah, I think this movie is squarely horror adjacent. Um, <clears throat> if we look to the past, you find a lot of movies about stalkers that people would include in the horror category. Things like Play Misty for Me, right? And um, or even um, Fatal Attraction to an extent, right? It's about a stalker, and to varying degrees of like terror and and you know. This movie may be far less scary than some of those, but I think that a lot of it does have some terrifying moments to it. And you're right. I mean, it owes a lot to things like like Copycat, which well, I think came later, right? When did Copycat yeah. come out? Um, yeah. 95? Yeah. But before that, like Silence of the Lambs, like you said, and the early 90s was just steeped in thrillers. Things like Hand That Rocks the Cradle and Pacific Heights and whatnot. And this is just another case of it. I think that this movie sort of leans into the romance a little bit more than the horror adjacency. But a lot of those beats and a lot of those moments are clearly present. And I mean, for any person who's a fan of finding the horror in movies that are not considered quote unquote horror movies, you know that this movie is sort of rife with examples yeah you don't even have to look i just had to think about it and it kind of dawned on me i'm like this is actually like a thriller horror adjacent film and we never right. even thought about it you know because most yeah. people zero in on that romance because of that song mm-hmm. you know but the movie is about you know her being constantly in danger and under threat of this creepy ass stalker and a hitman mm-hmm. so i mean come on rachel you in danger girl so <laughs> 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 were you scared while watching the bodyguard i uh, mm, i probably was when i was a kid watching it for the first time especially in the, the cabin at night scene where you're not sure where the killer is and you know and and then you know rachel or not rachel but uh, her sister gets shot you know and there were some tense moments um definitely i would say mostly centered around the cabin in the woods kind of you know, even the, some of the daytime scenes, obviously, you know, where the line, you know, the phone's been cut and all the cars aren't working, you know, and, you know, and they're kind of trapped there and it gives you that sense of foreboding, but also the Oscars was a big thing. And, and the, the danger just from normal audiences that she has, you know, I, I would definitely say that, uh, there were, there were moments of this when I initially watched it when I was a kid. Man, there's some tense moments even as an adult and where I, I you know, got tense, but I, I certainly, of course, knowing what happens, I'm not scared, you know? Well, and I, I don't remember being scared when I saw this when I was younger um, and watching it now for this podcast, I, I wasn't frightened, <clears throat> but I, I really felt uncomfortable in certain moments, especially like during the letter scenes where he's crafting the letters. It's kind of tense. And then every time they zoomed in on Kevin Costner's face <laughs> and when, whenever you like, Whenever the stalker is there and you don't see his face, you know, like when he's picking up the glove and like touching it just so and then (laughs) rifling through her car, you know, I mean, those are really uncomfortable moments and I can feel the tension in that. So I don't think I was like outrightly scared like I normally am in horror movies, but I mean, there's there's some neat moments in it. Yeah. So um, out of five stars, what would you rate The Bodyguard? I rated it a three and a half. I also rated it a three and a half on Letterboxd. Okay. Well, I'll be adding that to our Film Flamers Letterboxd rating as a three and a half. I'm actually kind of surprised that I did that. I mean, I was going into it having not seen it for quite some time. And I was like, I'm going to hate this fucking movie. I'm sure I'm just going to like the music or whatever. And then by the end of it, I was like, okay, I like it. <laughs> so, well, it's a three and a half with like connotations, right? Like special case, because it's one of those that's like really enjoyable, but you know, it's not very good. <laughs> so it's just like one of those that's like really fun to, to watch, you know? So I wouldn't say like, if anyone normally would be like, okay, well, if it's less than four stars, you know, which is actually a really high bar, I'm not going to watch it. So don't think that we're saying, you know, take it or leave it with our three and a half ratings. Um, you know, I would, I would definitely say that both of us recommend checking this out, especially if you haven't seen it a long time. And certainly if you have never seen it. Well, and everybody's rating for any movie is situational. You know what I mean? Like people can 
agree or disagree, people could give this movie a five star rating. You know, it just depends on who you are at the time you're watching that particular movie. Yeah. Um, I had to acknowledge how contrived it was and some of the performances and or casting decisions or something um, and some of the other stuff in it. But, um, you know, overall, you know, that three and a half is packed with, you know, a lot of, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, heart and soul, you know, that made this such a lasting, you know, movie. And a lot of that's probably the soundtrack and, and everything else. So. Agreed. All right. Well, finally, and some would say most importantly, who's the hottest guy in the bodyguard? I think part of Kevin Costner's contract is that no one else can be hot. Because <laughs> he's like mildly attractive and... I can't remember a single other person. Maybe the limo driver guy. The li- yeah, he's my choice actually. So Henry the Henry the chauffeur. Yeah, I'm gonna have to say Henry the chauffeur. He's really cute. Yeah, and I mean, like, funny. You could tell he was having a good time making this movie. I mean, like, and Kevin Costner has some dreamy moments, you know. And but, like, ultimately, I'm just like, I can't see myself with you <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> but well, he's barely human, know. so. <laughs> Do some standy. Yeah, so Henry the chauffeur for me. I don't know. Even like Psy is kind of more attractive than Kevin Costner in like some greasy sort of way. <laughs> well, everybody, we hope that you've enjoyed our conversation on The Bodyguard, and we hope that you kind of agree with us that this movie can be categorized as horror adjacent. Um, let us know what you think about our arguments or Give us some arguments against that if you want to. You can do that on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can also now find us on Letterboxd, as Chris said earlier. And you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call us on our hotline at 972-666-7733. Please call in with your thoughts on The Bodyguard and we will air them on our next Shooting the Flames and respond to them gleefully. <laughs> Um, also on our Shooting the Flames episodes, we like to recognize people who've left us reviews on Apple Podcasts. You can do that. Just leave us a five-star rating and a little snippet of a review or read it on Shooting the Flames. We also like to recognize our patrons on there, and you can find all of our bonus content on patreon.com slash thefilmflamers. We have tons of bonus content on there, and in fact, this was going to be a flashback episode for Patreon, so this is sort of what you're missing, so yeah. head over there and check it out. And instead of the bodyguard over on patreon we are going to put our hot takes so robert's going to talk about his experience with gretel and hansel and i'll be talking about some other things so head over there and check that out guys well i'm tired of your bullshit frank (laughs) (laughs) tired of your bullshit frank well chris if i should stay i would only be in your way <laughs> so you'll go. <laughs> so I'll go. But no. I'll think of you every step of the way. <laughs> oh fuck. Instead of running to you, I'm gonna say Sweet Dreams. <laughs> Don't you dare! <laughs> Walk away from me. (laughs) Don't you dare. (laughs) Walk away from me. (laughs) I have nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Nothing. If I don't have you. You realize that after this recording, I'll probably be standing in my kitchen for the rest of the night just singing these songs at the top of my lungs. My neighbors are going to hate me. <laughs> Good riddance. Shit. All right. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Bye. Bye.